Welcome back. I am here with one of our favorite guests, Dr. David Morehouse. How you doing, my friend? John, I'm doing good. Hi, everybody. All right. So today you're going to discuss a extended remote viewing trip, a physical trip that you did in Peru a few years back and some of the things that you were able to find. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I think, you know, in order to tell the story where people will kind of grasp what we're after here. I had two students that were therapists. They were Theron and Marianne Mayo. They were really good people. And they were really devoted to the art and science of remote viewing and doing it right. They also spent a lot of time in Peru visiting all the archaeological sites and befriended uh, a shaman, Jorge Ruiz Delgado, who's a well-known shaman down there. And if anybody's watched Ancient Aliens, when they when any anything they do in Peru, there's a take on it that's offered by Jorge. He's a really smart guy and a very spiritual person and very knowledgeable of the legend, the lore, the spiritual practices of, of Peru. <clears throat> They've written several books down there. In fact, I did a foreword in one of the books, but I had not been to Peru. I mean, I had known about Peru just from a counter-narcotics perspective and things like that, but I had never been into Peru. And I'd also never really been a student of Peru other than I had been kind of a follower in my 20s of archaeological sites that were being discovered in Central and South America, and some of the new archaeological perspectives countering the old archaeological interpretations of what was going on there. So I'd always been a believer. I mean, first of all, growing up as a soldier in the jungles of Central and South America, I know how quickly the jungle can reclaim anything that's mm -hmm. there and just bury it. So when they're discovering these sites and unearthing them and cleaning them and carving them out, and you're seeing how these things are constructed, and you're seeing things that old archaeology, like the British Geographical Society, those kinds of things, just believe that these were lands inhabited by dark savages, you know, and only the Christian white man actually created civilization and these places couldn't do that you see that movie the lost city of z or something like that right it's precisely the perspective of which old archaeological interpretations was based upon mm -hmm. these people didn't even have the wheel that's what they said they didn't have the wheel yeah so I remember even in my 20s and in college reading about some of the sites that were being unearthed and seeing that talk they were talking about that these roads were in there were roadways pat stoned roadways that were engineered the turns were engineered with a bank on them so you would have to think to yourself they don't have the wheel they must have really been hauling in their sandals running along the road that it had to have a bank put in it so that they didn't go off the high side it's just ridiculous 
some of the interpretations that old archaeology would stick to and still do to this day. And then also, I, you know, would reading and seeing size of stones and the precise stonework and milling and other. I think one of the other things that I saw, that I know I saw in studies as a kid in, in college, was where they were talking about that some of these decorative pillars that they had been laid, that they had been stone laid. So the idea that some 10 ton piece of stone had been put into a spindle and turned and tools used to round it and lathe it and give it intricate design and pattern in there to me was, that was just mind boggling. Especially when, again, when you bet, went back to the old interpretation of it, oh no, that can't be. They just had to chisel it. You know, that can't be. They didn't even have the wheel, right? So I just had dismissed archaeological work from that perspective early on. And I also took an archaeology class in high school. And I can still remember that one of the ways in which they did this was they had the class divided up into four groups. Each group secretly invented its own civilization and then created artifacts to represent that civilization. And then out in the place where the future farmers of America, you know, remember every high school had that? Well, they did in California anyway. You would go out there and they had a plot of ground and you dug down 24 inches and you seeded these artifacts from your civilization and you covered it back up again. And then what would happen is by luck of, you know, how they would draw it, team one would now be excavating team three's site. Team three would be excavating team two's site. You see what I mean? They would rotate it around and nobody knew what the other civilization was. So you had to, based on the things that you're finding, draw conclusions. You had to establish a logic stream for that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, an analysis pattern for that. You had to be able to explain that and justify it and defend it. And you came up with your interpretation of what the society was. It was a lot of fun to see that happen. It was also damn embarrassing to see how wrong we were. <laughs> we, we just had no idea. We, we thought, oh, we nailed this one. And then when the other team goes, yeah, no, 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 not at all. <laughs> that, that's not what we were trying to say. And that's not what that meant. So I learned early on to have kind of a disrespect for absolutism in archaeology and interpretations mm -hmm. of things that are long past, you know, have passed long since. So I had this affection for archaeology in Central and South America. I just never had an opportunity other than stumbling onto things in Panama and Honduras and Bolivia a couple of times and some other places, Argentina, Uruguay. I flew into Copan one time in an Israeli Arava and landed right in the middle of the big games field that's there in a military aircraft. That was an interesting thing just to see around there. But I knew that I really wanted to go there and figure out a way to go there as a remote viewer with remote viewers. 
So in 2004, our first journey there was based around the fact that, okay, we're going to do an advanced protocol, advanced form of the phenomenon of remote viewing called extended remote viewing. So we're going to take all graduates of coordinate remote viewing and we're going to mm-hmm. go to Peru. We're going to link up with Jorge Ruiz Delgado. And in his hotel, it's right on the shores of Lake Titicaca. And we are going to hold an extended remote viewing class. And then I'm going to make it up after that. It was kind of like what it was. <laughs> I really didn't know. I mean, it was very difficult to get information about what the itinerary was going to be. And I'm sure because it's the kind of place where it's difficult to get things on a schedule, right? I, I guess. It's just different. It's an underdeveloped but developed country. I mean, in the big cities, yes, but out in the other places, a lot of those things are, it's difficult. So I didn't know where we were going to actually go. So I get everything geared up, packed up because we we were used to traveling to other countries to teach classes. So all this stuff has to get packed up and hauled to Peru. And when we get to Peru, because of the enormous amount of baggage that I have, I am, of course, pulled to the side and they go through everything. And I go, you can't bring printers and two projectors and all these cables and all this other stuff and computers. My goodness, you have this, you know, on and on. And they made me give them a $25,000 deposit to ensure that I would not sell those things. I had to give them a credit card for $25,000 or a check. I can't remember which it was. And they gave me a piece of paper and they said, when you check out, when you leave, here's the inventory, make sure everything you're bringing in is on the inventory. And what I got out of that was, I'm never doing this again. I mean, I'm never gonna come down here and try to teach a class down here. This is nuts. Because when we got there, I mean, it, it's just difficult. The power requirements or power and the lighting, it's not a, built for a place of learning. This hotel wasn't. So it's not a mm-hmm. conference room. You're sprawled out in the lobby and you're trying to do it. It was just a bad mix. But we got through the protocols. We spent a day teaching the protocols. Didn't really do any practice targets for anybody. Just spent a day teaching the protocols and <clears throat> made sure that all the extended remote viewers knew what they were going to do what that was expected of them. And they knew about focus questions, nonlinear mind mapping, how to cool down. They all had, you know, back in those days, this is 20 years ago. So CD players, et cetera. And I just decided that, look, what we know is the old archaeological interpretation of things. So we're going to go to these different places as Jorge ferrets them out, stabilizes them on the itinerary, and we go to a particular place. And we ended up going to some places we would go six to six different places a day by bus. There are 60 some odd viewers in 2004, more in 2005. And then we sometimes by small coach bus, sometimes by big bus, big tour bus kind of thing. And we were sometimes we were going to 12 different places. So 
the opportunity to do what it is that I wanted to do, God, it was just a target-rich environment for us, right? We would show up at these places, and we would kind of stabilize and get into a group. I would brief the, the old archaeological interpretation of this place, and Jorge would add to the old archaeological interpretation. Occasionally, there were students that were with us. They could also add, because they were reading up on Peru, so they read, oh, and, and this is what this says. So that was good. We had an old archaeological interpretation. That was kind of the baseline where we were going from. The next thing that I wanted the viewers to do was you can walk this site for an hour and a half and you can record your perceptions, but I want you to tell me what your perceptions are of this place. Why is it here? What did it do? Where did it go? Any things that are significant things that happened here? These are all focus questions that we went through just a outline of those for almost every site. They were identical. Why is it here? Who established it? Was there help? What was the purpose? Where did it go? Et cetera, et cetera. And they could walk around in the site or they could go to a place in the site and just sit down in pairs and put their blindfold on, listen to the cool down CD and then start doing an actual ERV session or kind of a modified ERV session, however they wanted to do it. And in an hour and a half, come back. And when they would get back on site there, then we would spend 30 minutes just formalizing their session summaries. They would. And then it started off slow, kind of kind of spooky. It was a little awkward. I said, you know, okay, who would like to share their perceptions of this target site? About like, you know, out of the 60, 65, four hands go up. So I was like, oh God, this is going to be, you know, <laughs> okay, well, let's just go. And so four people who are experienced viewers, they had all been through extended remote viewing before and been through training with me many times. And so for them, it was just like, yeah, we get this. We know, we know what we're supposed to do. And so they just rattled off these incredible interpretations of answering those questions. And when it came to asking anybody else, there were a couple of hands that started to go up. But before, Jorge Ruiz Delgado could not contain himself. So he steps in up front and center with a big grin on his face. And I mean, I had only known the guy at that time for like two days. Mm -hmm. And he just starts in on this incredible, poignant, rampage of support for these viewers and doing what they're doing because what he was saying is you are saying things you're interpreting things that you're not supposed to know he goes i know them and other people who are trained as shaman and know the things that we know know them but you're not supposed to know them he goes i'm never supposed to tell you these things 
because it's a level of understanding that's held back for us who are supposed to know these things and teach and learn from these things. Because what you're doing is giving us another incredible layer or level of understanding and interpretation of what's gone on here. Things that we've thought about, things that we've felt about, things that are whispered about in the legend and the lore of this place amongst the peoples, the ancient peoples. But nothing that's ever been talked about or really written about in old archaeological interpretations. He goes, I didn't know what remote viewing was. He goes, I didn't even know what to think of it. I knew Theron and Marianne had been with mm-hmm. David working on this for a very long time. And he goes, I was excited to have you down here. He goes, but I honestly did not know what this was going to be. And he goes, now, this changes everything. Because now, this is no longer just a tour bus full of people from North America coming down here to see this place. He goes, now, I understand that I have it before me, a tool. I have a tool before me that is going to give me information. It's going to validate. It's going to corroborate. It's going to give me a whole new level of fight and understanding and, and, you know, and justification amongst my peoples for what we know or believed happened here. And that is just how that second day started. And then as soon as he got done and he bows out, you know, like 12 arms go up, then I can't stop him because now everybody's like, oh, holy, you know, we now, okay, we understand now what you want us to do. And so I didn't want to say these things, but, you know, they start throwing it out there. They start talking about what their perceptions were. This is precisely what we wanted done with this. And to relate this back to another project that I told you I was doing with History Channel, the, the big deal here was you can run all sorts of experimentation, but if the results of the experimentation are that's not supposed to happen, and I don't know how to explain what did happen, that's good. I mean, that is what the experimenter does, right? You, that's not supposed to happen. And I'm going to investigate as to why it happened, but I, I can't tell you. I don't know. There are things I cannot reach. There are variables that are not part of the equation for me. That's what remote viewers can do. Remote viewers, when trained well, organized well, run well, the data analyzed well, can put together missing pieces of the puzzle, albeit never absolutely, right? It's not 100% accurate. But When you get trending corroborative data across a wide spectrum on different things, that's valuable. It's good statistics. It's good data. doesn't mean it's absolute, but it certainly does give you a new understanding of what potentially could have caused that or caused Mm -hmm. something to happen here or what did happen here. So that's kind of where the first understanding of the application of this in that environment and, you know, exploring archaeological sites. That's where I first kind of connected the dots in my head that, wow, yeah, this is a powerful tool. But in those days for me, I, I just thought that the logistics of it 
were so overwhelming that how would you ever get this to be done? I mean, if somebody were going to write a book like about something like this, an employer of yours to do that, that would be an enormous undertaking to make that happen. So I kind of back burnered it for 20 some odd years, you know, I just never thought it would happen again. We did go back in 2005. We went back in 2005, and then that was my last journey in with remote viewing again. It's when I stopped doing what I was doing and went to go do other things. But mm-hmm. it was powerful for me to see that unfold. And so Jorge sat down with Darren and Marianne, and it completely shifted the itinerary. Because now it wasn't, we're just going to go to places because it's the places where we take tourists, you know, when they come down here. Now these were places that Jorge wanted us to go because he wanted 65 or more viewers to give him that kind of feedback again. He wanted to go to places that he knew were spiritually anchored in something that were touched by something not of this world or whatever you know let your imagination run wild with that from a shamanic perspective your understanding is that they have been a led and guided people for millennia and they want to know what came apart what had the wheels come off the cart whether they didn't have wheels according to yeah, but you get me. What what came at all to cause it to fall apart? Why did it rattle loose? Was it that the spirituality aspect wasn't strong enough, or was it simply that humanity cannot get out of its own way, as has been evidenced over and over and over again? And that with these great wisdoms and knowledge comes great responsibility, coupled with that power. And is it the, the nature of man somehow, somewhere, always to find a way to be destructive and negative with it? Does somebody suddenly become the tyrant, the fascist, the dictator armed with this power? Is there a way to stop that from happening? Why doesn't it? Why do we create these big, powerful civilizations that are clearly being guided and driven by something? Because they have technologies that equal in many ways where we are right now in terms of engineering and evidences of vehicles that fly and and so forth. I mean, were they doing this, being trained by some other influence outside the physical dimension of this planet? What was happening? Did they come up with it all on their own? Were they the first to invent the iPad before Apple? You know, it's like, who knows where it started and stopped? But what we do know is it stopped. And even shaman like Jorge want to have somebody who has the skill to look through that veil and say, with a degree of empirical evidence, not just anecdotal. This is what we believe happened. Wow, that's powerful for them because they don't get that. They get one or two people coming up. They go, well, I know what happened or I know what happened. But to have 
60, 70 people sit together, all trained in the same way, all using the same protocols, all of them developing data in the same way, all creating a product that then can be correlated or highs and lows thrown out, whatever you want to do, and understand the power of that. that that's why Jorge was like, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I'm not missing on this opportunity to capture every thing I can from this group of people. So the itinerary from 2004 and 2005 changed only slightly. In 2005, we went to a site that was, I I apologize, I cannot remember the name and I haven't actually been able to find any of my notes on the site, but we, it was a, it was because I ended up being more a ranger company commander again than I was a remote viewing teacher in in those days. We hiked like 12, 15 kilometers in to a first campsite over broken ground and constant climb and elevation. We were already high. And then the very first night, there's me and a SEAL corpsman, Troy, and we are repairing people's feet and blisters and (laughs) doing all kind of stuff to like two, three in the morning. And then in the morning, it's up again at seven for breakfast and everybody's packing up again. And I get 70 civilians from grandmothers to young mothers and guys everywhere in between. And some guys overweight, some guys haven't walked more than a mile in probably 30 years. And all of a sudden, here we are. And that next day, it's a zigzag up a mountain, 9,000 feet in vertical climb or close to it. We were just below the ice cap on the Andes in Peru right there, literally maybe a thousand feet below it. And we were in a brand new archeological site that had been, they're just slowly cutting away and excavating the jungle away from it. And how we got permission to be there, I don't know, but like, yeah, I know. Jorge Ruiz Delgado, he's a highly respected man in, in Peru, his wife's a federal judge. So yeah, that's how we got there. And you know, of course, we are there. And of course, again, that time was such a nightmare getting up there because just the road march out there to the first camp was one thing. The next day was a madhouse. I mean, I had people sprawled up and down the left side of the trail, off the trail, off in the trees to get in the shade kind of thing. Nobody was carrying enough water. So me, and a couple of other guys are running up and down with rucksacks full of bottled water and stuff. And finally, I'm like three quarters of the way up. And I know I have students scattered up this trail. And I'm really worried about that. So I run back. I just like, this is madness. I run back down the trail. And I get to this little stable house that is at this bridge, the suspension bridge you go across. And I go, caballos. You know, I need horses, horses, mules, donkeys. I don't care. Large cats, whatever you got, we'll take them, bring some llamas. And they tell the guy, I have people scattered up and down. And I said, some of them have heart problems and some of them are dehydrated and they've got too far to go. Can we do it? This guy, like, without even blinking an eye, he just gave a couple of whistles to his boys 
And they were often, they ran and the next thing I know, there's like 12 horses running with a guy behind them being pulled as fast as he can run as the horses are running up these switchbacks to get up to these people. And that's how they saved it. Some mules and some horses and got those people up there. I learned a big lesson with that. But same thing that next night was just taking care of medical stuff. But the next day, we went out to this particular place and sat on a wall, a defensive wall. Condors were flying below us. That's how high we were. The condors in pairs were cruising with their massive wingspans below us, like 100 feet below us. It was an amazing experience. And the remote viewers that were there, aside from being beat up, blistered, sore, tired, you know, and worn out, were amazing. Because everything I asked them to do, they just did it. And with great passion in it. And they just never stopped devouring all of the spirituality and the imagery, the color and the smells and the sounds and the power of being in these places, like this new site that was being excavated. And they had every night there was screaming and jumping up and down and cheering. And it'd be like, they'll be coming into my tent. You got to come out and see this. And it'd be like, what, you know, <laughs> you got to come out and see it. And you come out and there would be this big display of alien ships, you know, UFOs doing something to which I was like, who cares? You know, I'm exhausted. <laughs> I don't care. I'm going back to sleep. You know, no more. They were, so there are recorded. I think Nicole Whitney has one of the recordings of one of those three nights where that was going on. And they were out there cheerleading these craft that were there and pattering off in the distance, like looking at them. And yeah, I had nothing to do with that. I was just like, I'm beat. Unless they're going to land here and give us a ride to the top tomorrow, then they can stay where they are. That's kind of my attitude. So yeah, they had these alien encounters that were there. There are portals there. There are vortices there. Which place is this specifically? The 9,000 foot mountain? It's all over Peru. They're everywhere. I mean, it's just everywhere but i don't know what this archaeological site was but it's there there are other places we went to there's this place that jorge wrote a book amaro maru jorge 
claims that he discovered it. Like he was just on a spiritual walkabout and roaming around in this area around Lake Titicaca, but further away. And he finds a doorway in the rock, just a doorway in the face. And it's carved down the sides. Like it's almost like the Incas were going to start like their version of a Petra, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just a geological rock outcropping that rises up out of the earth at an angle, right? Like that. And down in here, there are two complete, like somebody was cutting out, establishing the facade of a building. And then there is a keyhole doorway with a step in it. And that keyhole doorway, it's like four feet at the top. And it's like five or six feet tall, as I recall, comes down. And then it's like two feet at the bottom. So you can kneel in that doorway and put your hands on both sides of the doorway and kind of go into a meditative state or an altered state of consciousness. And you begin to feel like you're vibrating at some bizarre increased level. Some of the people were describing their body temperature going up. Others described hearing the blood coursing through their brain, through the vessels in their brain. Others described their arms going numb from holding side you know, on the doorway when they were there. All sorts of physiological uh, sensations were being described there. And the same thing. Or he would say, you know, old archaeology turn, says that this is a mistake, uh, a residence unfinished, you know, unfinished structure. You know, that's it. Because old archaeology had no idea at the level at which human beings are perceiving now. And then Jorge said, I know what this is because I discovered it and I understand the meaning of this place. And I also want you to know that what I felt when I first came here was what you felt when you first came here. And he goes, and I needed to hear that from other people because I bring tourists up here. And if I show this to them, they go, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, what's next? Because it just looks like a hole in a wall. They don't, unless they're spiritually connected in some way or they're practicing in some sort of other belief system, they're uncomfortable with just looking at something like that. They really don't know what to do with it. So again, it was neat to see the interplay between Jorge and the students at this point. And it was actually getting to be Jorge and the students. <laughs> It was all, you know, the the two of them, they were back and forth on things all the time. And I was kind of like, a, I was starting to feel like a third wheel, which was a good feeling. I mean, I was glad I didn't have to be there trying to thin things up. So Aramu Maru, it was this really amazing place, right? It's a powerful gateway into another dimension. And it's just right there. And it's never been acknowledged until Jorge discovered it and talked about it. And then 
over two year time, he had over a hundred remote viewers trained that were there to describe sensations that they were perceiving there about what was through that veil of stone that they kneeling in that doorway in this state. And we gave everybody like five minutes and five or 10 minutes in the doorway. We had to hike in there to it and then gave everybody time with that. And then came back out from there. That was one of the places. What did they perceive that was on the other side of that doorway? It wasn't like looking through a doorway and then seeing a city street with life on it. It was like looking through a doorway that was opaque, but then came translucent. And on the other side was just like another dimension of what was on this side, only like looking through a glass darkly. There it is on you. It's like, it's a parallel dimension. Nobody was describing anything science fiction-like or advanced. I think the best description that several of them had was, I had the sensation kneeling in the doorway and looking I felt as though somehow I had been turned around and I was on the other side looking out at the same place. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So they're kneeling in the doorway, looking through. And as it becomes translucent, there was a moment of vertigo there that, oh, like they're, they felt like they just somehow the door turned on them. And now they're looking right back out into the same dimension where it's all the same terrain, it's all the same place, but it's different somehow. It's colored different. It feels different, but it was confusing for them. But that's probably the best description of that, is that it was going in and then feeling like when going in, you just basically, you're seeing another dimensional aspect of the very place that you're in. And I understand that, as I know you do, but it, it was unusual to have all these people, you know, go there and do that. Jorge was just grinning from ear to ear, you know, the whole time, because it's not often you get to feed that many people into that. Then we went to Bolivia, took the bus from there to Bolivia. And the place is called Pumapunku now. Mm -hmm. It used to be called Tijuanaco. (laughs) And in Tijuanaco, it was here again. This one was a little bit different. We really, because it was in Bolivia and there are issues in some cases about border crossings between Bolivia to Peru. And I guess it depends on week to week who likes who or doesn't. We got there and he wanted us to do it because it's one of the places that's highly contested in terms of being able to describe what it is and why it's there. There's a lot of stone carvings of faces, like the winged serpent, you know, there's just a whole lot of other things that are there that people think shouldn't be there. And old archaeological interpretations tend to be really limited and dismissive of why certain things are showing up there that actually show up in Central America and have not shown up any place else other than in Central America, but here they are here now. And 
it was a weird energy in that place. It's still in ruins and so much of it. And it hasn't been, at least at that time, had not been really repaired. Things are not stood up. When you're walking around the parts that are still somewhat normal, there's huge gateways at the end, you know, within these patios and open grounds, but with the bases of probably what were obelisks at Mm -hmm. some point. And you're just kind of walking around and there are just, it's an uneasy energy that's there. And the viewers were there. We were there an hour, but everybody was, one of the things I noticed about it was that I didn't have to go hunt people down and herd them back to the bus. Everybody was there for an amount of time. And most of the people were like, I'm done here. I don't like this place. And they came back to the bus. They were on the bus waiting. They didn't want to be there. It's just, I don't know what happened there, but the fact that we were explaining to Jorge that they did it on the bus too. Nobody wanted to go out and sit in the site and talk about it. They just did it on the bus. At, at first, kind of my skeptical, critical mind was like, well, maybe it's just because this place is unattractive and not mm-hmm. really well cared for. It was a pain in the butt getting through the border to get here. Maybe it just kind of set everybody on edge. But I don't think that was it. I mean, my sense of being at a place, it was one of those places where the hairs on the back of your neck kind of went up and you were really wondering what could have gone on here. And we didn't get to the bottom of it. And I think maybe if I had viewers in the blind off site, that I could have targeted that place with those kinds of focus questions and probably come up with some good data. But I think something there just washed over the people and it washed over them to the point, whether it was visual, whether it was, like I said, the encounters with the Bolivian customs or whether it was the place or a combination of all of that. They were not effective truly in that place, but it was a place that made me feel uneasy. That was one of the places where you take the selector switch off safe. Seriously. You know, that was just one of those that you couldn't answer why, but that's where your, you know, your thumb would go down and click off because it was one of those places that made you feel like something, something's going to happen here or something could happen here or something has happened here. A lot of mystery in that place, really. So like like you had a feeling that it was cursed in some way? I had a feeling there like I had the same feeling in Chaco, in Chaco Canyon, Mm. which is something turned here. Dark, very dark. Something turned dark. You know, something, something acted on absolute power, absolutely. I'm just speculating, but it became something like a slave market or worse than that, you know? It it could have become an execution grounds. I don't know. There's all sorts of speculation. Even Jorge himself would say, it's a place that makes people uneasy every time they come here, you know, including him. And he understands it probably better than everybody else. So he gave a lot of explanation of the shamanic interpretations of this place. 
but I, I don't think he broke through the crust of what had happened to the viewers where they were there. So most of them, not all, but most of them came out of there with a really uneasy feeling. And it was fun, you know, cause there were smiles and, you know, chatty people going there and going back, there was like kind of stone silence hmm. or like a good hour until we got or, or plus till we got back to uh, the hotel. So yeah, it was, a, it was a long drive back. So after about an hour in the drive, maybe people started to loosen up an hour or two, you know, maybe by the time we got back to the hotel, people were a little bit better. But I remember sitting around a dinner table that night. People were, there were some people really still affected by it. And just, they couldn't explain it or anything else. But I, I just share that with people, not because I'm just trying to stir the ideas there. I'm just trying to say that that kind of stuff happens. And if you're if, if we don't have the way to really do any kind of deliberate work on it, and you're just, mm -hmm. you're already open, you've already gone to a place, you've spent time kneeling in a spiritual doorway, putting yourself in an altered state of consciousness, and you come out of there kind of elevated, the people were kind of vibrating on a different level. And we get in a bus and drive into Bolivia, you know, go to this other place where everybody's like immediately, eh, you know, down and can't explain why. And there's just so much that's not known about the place. And there's so much that's not understood about why these particular faces carved in stone are there that are nowhere else, like, except at a civilization thousands of miles away with no explanation given. Well, we all know what the explanation would be. I mean, if we're talking about this, you know, we're not ancient astronaut theorists but, or alien astronaut theorists, right. but we are remote viewers. And so we can say, you know, yeah, we believe that this is one of those places that shared power and teachings and something happened here where it turned, became twisted, distorted. How? I don't know, but, but certainly work could be done to determine that, right? But there was a lot of slaughter and murder and starvation and brutality and theft of lands and gold and other things. Who knows? It, it could have been conquistadors. I don't know. I just don't know enough about it. And I'm, I know I'm spending too much time for you because I'm, I'm talking about the perceptions of the viewers on that day, you know, going to that place. All right, my friend, Yeah, let's end the episode on that. And then we'll talk about a few more of the locations in the next episode. Okay. All right. Thank you very much, my friend. My pleasure. If you enjoyed this video, please click on like, subscribe, and the notification button so that you're alerted anytime I post something new.